0: If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn them open to James chapter 1? We're going to be in verses 16 through 18. If you're wearing your spiritual dentures, you're going to have a hard time. But we need to be Christians that uh, interact with the text, that understand deeply what the Word of God says, because it is the primary tool in the Lord's toolbox to redeem our lives and to shape us like Christ. So I'm going to encourage you to uh, not only listen this morning, perhaps take notes, but even better than that, interact in your mind with what I bring to you this morning, and certainly most chiefly the Word of God. You know, there was a sign on a dressing room mirror of a department store which helpfully advised their shoppers. Here's what the sign said. Objects in the mirror may appear bigger than they actually are. (laughs) Now I'm going to use that as a way to illustrate and to set forth what we need to be realizing this morning as we plunge into this text. Friends, listen. Sin and grace are two things that we cannot possibly see big enough. Our flesh wants to see sin minimized, we want to see sin in smaller ways than they really are, and our spirits tend to see grace much less than it really is. The sermon this morning is the sequel to what I preached last week. You'll see a snapshot slide of what we said last week, but I want you to understand that God is giving us in this passage, you and I. All of us who are in Jesus Christ by faith, he is giving us a redemptive solution to temptation that wages war in all of us. He's provided help for us and James is encouraging his readers who are persecuted, who are going through trials, who because of these never-ending trials are learning to possibly even give up on God. Maybe God's not even good. Maybe God is the author of evil. Maybe it's God who is tempting us rather than dot, dot, dot. This is what his readers were struggling with. And he wants us to endure trials. He wants you and I to resist temptation. You don't resist trials and endure temptation. You endure trials and you resist t- temptation. But he's not only cheering us on. You see, God wants you and I to be victorious over sin. He wants us to be able to endure trials Victoriously, He does want that. And it's not that he's just cheering us on. But God is, in fact, in those who are in Christ and enabling them, empowering them. Now, some of you, as I'm watching, are not even really maybe even tuned in. You remember a couple weeks ago I said there's this glaze that a pastor can sometimes see over the eyes of people who are listening. Some of you, that glaze occurs right after I do an announcements. But uh, I want you to get this. Because this is setting the foundation for this morning. God cheers us on and God works in the life and in the heart of those who are in Christ to enable them to be victorious. Amen? Here's what he says, James chapter 1. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God gives four redemptive solutions to temptation in this passage. Number one, what he gives us is to ask for Directions To ask for directions. Verse 16, some of you are thinking, Pastor Tim, how on earth are you seeing verse 16 as God telling us to ask for directions? Well, bear with me and let me see if I can help you understand this. You see, James just finished... And verses 14 through 15 detailing this path of temptation. You see that cycle up there that begins with desire, goes through deception, goes into design, and then it it, it, uh, results in our disobedience. And if not curbed, then habitual sin results in whatever James means, but death of some sort. So James details in vivid fashion through graphic hunting and fishing terminology and childbirth imagery. He's helping us understand what this path of temptation looks like. And he firmly pointed you and I to understand who really is the culprit in temptation. Is it Satan? Is it the checkout line in your local grocery Store with all the magazines and tabloids tabloids of scantily clad women? Is that the culprit? Is it God? James says, no, it's none of those. Here's the culprit. It's your desires that rage in your heart. Friends, listen, every single sin you and I ever commit, every temptation we ever experience is a temptation that is pulling out of our hearts what is already there, our own desires. So don't blame God who is holy, he says in verse 14. Don't blame God who is literally in the Greek, untemptable. The blame isn't with him, it's with us. James points us toward our help, and he first tells us to learn to ask for directions. Look at verse 16 again. Don't be deceived. The word deceived literally means to be led astray from the truth. Now think of that for a second. Interact with this. To be deceived is to be led away from the truth. It's A a person who is being deceived is a person who is wandering from truth. He or she has begun to leave the path of wisdom and entered into the paths of folly. Here's what it looks like in metaphoric fashion. See, you and I are walking along paths of righteousness. If you're in Christ, you are created with a new nature, we'll get to in a minute, that beats with a desire to be right with God. And to walk faithfully. But we're walking down life and all of a sudden there in the woods off of the path of righteousness is a lure. We call it temptation. There's a lure. And all of a sudden it agitates and it excites what's already in our hearts. And it's a desire that may have been at some point in time a good, godly, and God-derived Desire but somehow it gets dragged away and enticed and it becomes a desire of ungodly proportion and all of a sudden we begin that first step off of the path of wisdom, off of the path of righteousness, onto the other path of foolishness. You see, deception was the second step of temptation that James gave us in verse 14. It's what it means to be dragged away and enticed. You see this vividly in proverbs. Here it is, with persuasive words, she led him astray. You see this leaving the truth. You see this um, at this uh, deception, which means to be led astray from the truth. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And all at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Here's that imagery of enticing and dragging away. Those are hunter terms. Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now listen to this. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn. See, this is what James is saying. When he says to not be deceived, don't be deceived, dear brothers. You see, as you and I wander and progress further around that loop of temptation, we begin to move away from truth. This thing that I'm desiring, now you can, you can really easily fill in the blanks. This thing, whatever it may be for you, this thing that I'm desiring, maybe it's success. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's approval. Maybe it's security that comes, you think, through money. Maybe it's physical pleasure. These things we believe in deception has the power to make me happy, to make me satisfied, to fulfill me. This is precisely the art of deception. Here it is. If you want to define deception, here's your your definition. It is to make someone believe that things are other than they are so that he will do something he would never otherwise do. I'm going to read it again. Friends, I'm hoping you understand this. I'm hoping you can see yourself in this definition. It means to make someone believe that things are other than they are so that, there's a purpose for it, so that he will do something he would never otherwise do. How many times have you and I, after we have sinned, And after the excitation of your heart is over and the crushing guilt and reality of what you've done settles into your soul, how many times have you said to yourself, what is wrong with me? That is insane. I would never want to do that. Why did I just do that? Friends, is called deception. You see, the mind, your and my belief system, the way that we think, the way we interact with the truth of God, the mind is the watchman of the soul and the flesh seeks its overthrow. You want to know how to keep your soul... Write with God that gird your mind with truth. Take captive every thought in Christ because otherwise deception occurs and you begin to leave the path of wisdom to walk in the path of folly. See, this is the way our flesh tricks us into sin. Friends, this is you and I. This is the way our flesh tricks us into sin. A major reason you and I are so prone to falling in temptation is that our minds lack the searing and enlightening touch of God's truth. Friends, you and I tend to lack accurate self-knowledge. Let me ask you a few questions. Interact with me on this. Have you identified your weaknesses in your life? You know, those things that keep tripping you up, have you identified them? Have you been able to see the paths that you cannot even let your feet touch? Because if your feet even touch it, you're down the path of sin before you know what happened. Maybe it's even a person or a group of people that continually tempt your heart to sin. If you identify that these people I cannot be with, because Proverbs is right, he who is with wise will be wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Maybe it's your friends if you've identified. It was that way with me. When I knew that God was dealing with me to stop drinking so many years ago, it was one of the things he revealed to me was, Tim, you can no longer be with those friends. You know what he did? He took all of them away from me. In the space of an hour, I was literally left friendless in order to get my feet back in the path of righteousness. Maybe it's the friends. How about maybe even more subtly? How about this? Perhaps there's a cycle or there's a predictable tendency in your sin, and temptation. Have you ever noticed that stressful conditions, when you're under stress, that temptation seems to be inflamed? Have you ever noticed that? Because you know what stress is doing? Stress is squeezing our hearts. And when stress squeezes your heart like a tube of toothpaste, what was in your heart wants to come out. And it wants to come out through our mouth. And it wants to come out through our hands. And it wants to come out through our feet. James is saying, don't let our desires lead our minds astray from truth. Cling to it like you would a rescuer's rope in a storm-tossed ocean. But he goes on. Look what he says. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Look at that for a second. So many of us read these little words like dear brothers, and we just flip right over it. When James is giving us life altering truth in them, here's what it means. It's an adjective that speaks, the word dear is a Greek word that speaks of being united to God and united to one another. Did you get that? United to God and united to one another. So when James says, my dear brothers, he's commuting, communicating a holy truth of redemptive proportions. It means that, friends, you're united with God. You're united with each other. Therefore, the way that Tom Lou lives is very much under my responsibility. The way that Pastor Tim lives is very much under Bruce's responsibility. We need to be with each other. We need to be united with each other. There is no such thing as an island of redemption. Yes, I'm responsible for my walk before the Lord, but you're responsible to encourage me. I'm responsible to pray for you. James writes to them and says you need to be dear brothers, you need to be dear sisters, and you need to be turning one another back to the paths of righteousness. You know, the success rate for the lone believer is statistically off the grid. Most of them... Most of the lone believers who never who never cultivate and create a relationship of transparency and honesty and responsibility will die rutted in the sins of their temptations. John Piper says, I remember going to a conference years ago and Piper who is a guy is on monolithic proportions of theology. The guy says this so simply. He says, a friend came to me the other day, and he says, John, I'm struggling with this sin, and I can't defeat it, and I need your help. So John says, all right, I'll help you. And every day, John Piper calls his friend up, and he says, hey, how are you doing? I'm praying for you. Are you walking on the paths of righteousness? Are you staying true for the Lord? And the guy says, you know what? I'm doing really well. God bless you, brother. I'll call you tomorrow. Click. Next day, hey, how are you doing? Are you walking faith? Walking in faith? Are you honoring the Lord? Struggling this? I'm struggling today, John. Come on, let's pray right now. And he prays for him. I'll call you tomorrow. Click, friends. That's what it means to understand. James is called to be dear brothers. It means that there is no longer an option. For any Christian to join with other Christians in humble honesty. If you want to make it in this Christian life, you will not make it alone. So don't be deceived, dear brothers. Ask for directions. When your feet leave the paths of righteousness, my job is to help you get them back. Your job is to help me get mine back. But number two, he gives us another redemptive solution. It's called to get discernment. Look at verse 17, if you would. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above. You see, James had just taught. I want you to get a, a coin in your mind. Pretend I'm holding a big coin, and on one side of the coin, James just taught in verses 14 through 15 that God is utterly holy. He is not able to tempt anybody. He cannot look on evil. He cannot do evil. God is untemptable. And now James flips the coin over, and he says every good and perfect gift is from God, from above. You see, God has not given us some of the good things we have, but every good thing you possess came from God. Literally translated, this verse means every good act of giving and every perfect gift. You see, God is the greatest giver you'll ever meet. You see, the deception, and I want you to grab this. Here's where you take your dentures out and put your real teeth in in your mind. Here we go. The deception... In temptation is this. You ready? And it's in every temptation. God is holding out on me. God is not good to me. If only I can manage to fulfill my own desires, I would finally be complete. I will finally be happy. I will finally be satisfied. You see, willful sin in the Christian you understand what I said? Willful sin in the Christian betrays a crack in their theology. And that crack runs along the fault line of God's attribute of goodness. God is not good to me. Therefore, I'm justified in moving away from God and grabbing what I want in another source. James writes that God loves to give, And only gives what is good. And what he decides to give us is perfect for what we need for a blessed life. The object that we desire in temptation becomes what is good. Now listen to that. I'm going to show you that in scripture. The object in temptation, whether it's fame, success, approval, security, or a new car, a bigger home. The object in temptation becomes what is good, and God becomes the one who is evil. This is precisely what happened with our first parents. Here it is, Genesis chapter 3. For God knows, Satan said, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look what they say. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was what? For food and what to the eye? And also what for gaining wisdom? She took some and ate it. Do you see the process that what God had asked them to do, abstain from that tree, live in dependence on Him, that became something where God was holding out on them. The deceiver deceived them into believing this, and they moved out to that illicit fruit to find what God they believed would not give them. The fruit became what was good, and God became evil. You see, the discerning mind learns to examine our desires, that's what it means to have discernment. It means to be able to say, to take what my desire is and to be able to hold it up to redemptive lenses and say, God, is this desire from you or is this desire from me? Is this desire going to end in your glory or is this desire, if I can get it, will end in my glory? You know, sometimes I go to um, unique places to work on sermons. And this one, I, I got a lot done at Burger King this week. And... Um, There was a couple that came in with their three- or four-year-old child, and it was interesting. I had my back to them, but I could hear everything that was happening. And this child got um, the Burger King Happy Meal, and in that meal is a toy. And as soon as they sat down, this little boy starts demanding his toy. And I want you to see what's going on in that little powerful heart. He starts demanding that toy, and here's dad that says, "No, you know the rules. You must. You got to eat your food before you get your toy." And the and the boy, the boy was a genius. He was awesome. He knew how to get that toy. Guess what? He got his toy because he ranted and raved loud enough till finally he got what he wanted. This is called coveting. And here's what coveting is. Coveting is the illicit desire. To possess someone, what someone else has. Or to possess more of what you already have. Coveting always wants more. It is the will to possess. You see that in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 5. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and he is like death, never satisfied. That's what coveting is. You see, it looks like Um, This, I want that toy. No, you need to eat first. That's what's right for you. That's what's good for you. No, I want the toy. And a cosmic battle begins in the heart of that little four-year-old with his father that eventually he won. See, the deception and coveting is this. I deserve that toy. It's mine. I've earned it. I need it. It will give me the happiness that I want. See, this is the belief system that's below coveting. All I'm doing is I'm taking coveting and I'm slicing and dicing it so that you can see what's really the belief system below it. You can do this with any sin. Discernment helps you do that. Ed Welch says this, Whatever earthly desire does not take no for an answer is a lust that surpasses your desire for Jesus himself. You see, the coveter fundamentally does not trust and rest in God's providence and God's goodness. There's another solution. It's a third one. And that solution is that uh, we need to know the giver. Verse 17, verse B. Part, the second part of that verse. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James says even more about God's nature to give us perfect gifts. That phrase, coming down, to listen, this is really neat. Coming down is a verb, that's easy to know. But the Greek tense is continuous and repeated action. So it describes the unending, everybody listen to this, it describes the unending succession of God's gifts to his children. See, we have a God that doesn't like to just give one gift a year. He don't, we have a God that doesn't tally up how much each gift is costing him. We have a God that rains down unending successions of gifts that are perfect for what we need to walk redemptively and righteously. God is above us, is why James says, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. He's the creator God. He's created you. He's created me. He knows what we need. He knows exactly what it is in our heart that we have to have. C.S. Lewis reminds us that our problem is not that you and I desire too much, but rather that what we long for is too unfulfilling. Anything that is necessary for your joy. Now listen, brother and sister, anything that is necessary for your joy and your satisfaction with God, He will provide. And an unending succession of generous, perfect, good gifts. There's a fourth solution. And this is the most powerful one. If you're zoning out on me, this is when you want to come back in. Number four, the fourth solution God gives is a new nature. Look what he says in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I love what Spurgeon says, Charles Spurgeon, one of the heroes of my faith. He says this, I am quite certain that if God had chosen me, I should never have chosen him. Rather, if God had not chosen me, that makes more sense, I should never have chosen him, and I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Don't you agree with that? The greatest gift God has ever freely chosen to give is regeneration. Friends, regeneration means a new birth. It's salvation. It's a new life. It's a new heart. It's a heart with new desires and a new capacity for joy that enjoys a relationship with God. Friends, you and I, before Christ, Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our transgressions. There was no enjoyment that any of us had in Christ. In fact, we were at enmity with Him. We were at war with God. We didn't like God. Why do you think we're being so missional in our church focus? Because why would the world who hates God want to come to church to hear about Him? That's why we go to them. That's why we live with compassion. That's why we take the salt and the light to the community. That's why we live out of ourselves externally. Because no person of the world loves God. He says, Ezekiel 36, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God didn't take our old nature and spritz some redemptive cologne on it and throw it back into our lives. He took it out. He got rid of it. He put it to death on the cross. A new nature is dead according to the gospel. And what He's given you and I in return is a new nature created... To desire Him. Created to want Him. Created to know when to live in truth and how to live in truth and to be fulfilled when we're living in truth. Prior to that, we're sin's prisoners. Now friends, if you're like me, the question comes up, then why do I still sin? The old nature's dead. But we live in jars of clay, Paul says, that our flesh And that flesh wages war, Galatians 5, against the Spirit of God. And the flesh makes us, the flesh wants us. It's the desires that may start out godly, but they they get enlarged until they're ungodly proportions. The flesh makes us want to battle God. The flesh makes us want to turn from the Lord. But the gospel, and this is so key, the answer to that is the gospel. The gospel is still at work in you and I. The gospel wasn't something that was only needed to save us, to give us new birth. The gospel is still at work in us. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are... are ready. Being saved. Look what Paul did not say to those of us who were saved, to those of us that got saved in the past, is to those of us who are being saved. It's present tense in the Greek. It's ongoing, continuous action. The gospel is what is learning you, is teaching you to fit out the new nature, to say no to ungodliness, to say yes to righteousness. The gospel is at work in our hearts. For Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Then live as children of light. Friends, hang in there. I'm almost done. This is so important. I'm going to sum this up almost to simplistic proportion. If you are here this morning and you have a relationship by faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has taken your old nature, my old nature, and he sacrificed it, nailing it to the cross. It died when he died. And when he laid in that grave and he came out of that tomb, the Bible says his death rags stayed behind. Because the old rags, the old clothing of the old nature is not fitting to clothe the new nature. And he came out of that grave with new clothes. And you and I have come out of justification by with Christ as righteously dressed in robes of grandeur and splendor and glory. Therefore, listen, when, not if, when you and I fail When you and I fall, when you and I rage in our desires and we don't trust God that He has all perfect gifts for us and we reach out instead to elicit fruit, when, not if, when we do that, we are doing it no longer by compulsion, which is what the old nature did because we were slaves to it. Now we do it by choice. You and I are choosing And the greatest lie that I think the devil can give to any believer is that you are still a slave to sin, friends. You are set free. Sin is dead. You have the power to live victorious. But you need to ask for directions. You need discernment. You need to know that the giver is good. God himself gives good and continuously perfect gifts. And you need to know how to live in the new nature. There is no other way James gives. Are you like me? I'm tired of sinning. But the truth is, we're going to sin until the day Christ comes back or we die and go to him. But friends, there is a solution for sin. And James just gave it four things. Ask for directions. Stop living your lone ranger life. You can't make it on your own. You weren't designed to. Even the Trinity is in relationship. The triune God lives in relationship. He created us to image Him. We cannot make it on our own. Number two, get discernment. The Word of God is living and active. It penetrates to even dividing thought and attitude. You want to know if your desire is right, the Word of God will show you. And thirdly, know God. Some of us are angry with God. I have met so many angry with God Christians. My brother is one of them. You can't have a 10-minute f- a talk with my brother until you start hearing him, you know what, everybody else is blessed but me. My life is just one trial after another. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about God. He's angry with God because he doesn't think God's gifts are perfect. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's gifts are perfect? The evidence of that, don't shake your head yes, the evidence of that is seen through how you handle temptation. Because all pursuit of sin reveals a crack in your theology of God's goodness. And finally, know who you are. Friends, you're redeemed. If you're in Christ, you're new. If you're in Christ, he lives in you and he powerfully battles within you and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for James. Lord, thank you for the fact that he just tells it the way it is. Lord, I respect that. I love that. Lord, thank you that it's simple. Lord, thank you that you've given us solutions to temptation. Lord, I'm sure I could speak for most of my brothers and sisters, if not all of them. Lord, we are tired of sinning. We are tired of falling. Lord, help us to be able to humble ourselves and ask for directions. Lord, help us to get discernment through your word. Lord, I pray that we would know how good and gracious and awesome you are. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to live with this new nature. Lord, we love you. We ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to ask...